0: morning everybody Uh, my name is David Hunt and I'm a member of New Heights Fayetteville and I promise I'm supposed to be standing here right now Josh Wilson's not locked in a closet somewhere and despite what some of you may think I didn't eat him so um, a few weeks ago I was asked to give a uh, commencement address for Springdale High School's graduation ceremony That speech seemed to resonate with some people, and it also happened to line up well with Josh's teaching today, so he uh, asked me to give you an adapted version of that speech before his talk. In my address to the graduates, rather than a long list of life advice, I decided to try and communicate just one thing that I wish I'd really understood when I was their age. Now, of course, if I wasn't speaking in a public school setting, the one key to life I would have spoken about would have been the gospel because one's response to Jesus is the ultimate question of any life, the one that will determine the everlasting condition of every human being. But being at public school, I had to give a secular message, and the message I chose to give was what I believe is the key to living a productive life. And it's only been in the last few years that I've really started to understand it myself. But if I'd really instilled this thing deep in my own heart when I was sitting where those graduates were, I'd be so much further than I am right now, both, you know, not both, but intellectually, professionally, personally, and spiritually. So I'll tell you now what I told them about this key to life, which can be expressed as 28,832. How many of you in here have heard of uh, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where he says the secret of the universe is 42? A couple hands. Adams is wrong. The real secret in this life, anyway, is 28,832. But let's put that aside for just a moment. It's already June 2017. Who in here has felt that this year has passed by more quickly than you thought it would, or felt the sensation of time speeding up the longer you've been alive? Do you remember how long summers used to feel in elementary school, How, when one grade ended? uh, It used to feel like a lifetime until the next one began? Did your summer feel like a lifetime last year? If you're younger, I have news for you, the summer you're entering now will seem even shorter still, as will the next one after that, and the next one after that. You see, younger people, uh, much of your life experience to this point has reliably taught you things about the universe and the way it works. You've learned not to touch a hot stove or jump out of an airplane without a parachute. But what your past experience has not prepared you for well at all, is your conception of time, because time is a liar, and the way time lies to you as a child infects your perception of it for the rest of your life. As a result, adults like me are constantly asking themselves, where'd the time go? We're never quite able to put our childish view of it away and are forever surprised by its relentless march as the years churn by. You young people in here are just on the bleeding edge of this vortex, just starting to feel the pull of the downward spiral. The days and even the weeks will continue to fly past like the painted dashes on a highway, going ever faster and faster, and nothing you can do can slow it down because you don't have the wheel. Time does. And time is merciless. And that brings me back to 28,832. Now, please don't ever forget that number because 28,832 is the average number of days a person in the United States will live. That's it. It's 78.94 years turned into days, including leap years. And if the average age of those graduates I spoke to was about 18 and a half years, that means they've already lived about 6,757 of those days. How many do they have left? might be easier to turn it into weeks for you. Weeks fly by two, as you know, and I've done the math. It means those graduates would have had 3,151 weeks left, or to put it another way, just... 3,151 weekends left in their whole life. And looking at some of these expressions here, I see a few middle-aged folks starting to do some math. Uh, Of course, 28,832 is only an average. Some of you will live longer. My grandmother died a few weeks ago, nearly 86 years old. 31,401 days for her. But some of you will be on the short side of the average. Earlier this year, I went to the funeral of a friend of mine, Blue Moon. Some of you may have known him in here. He was one of the most warm, full of life people I've ever known. He was only a year and a half or so older than me. He died of cancer, leaving behind a wonderful wife and an adorable young son, 15,276 days. And what about Brandon Burlsworth, the subject of my last film, Greater, which some of you have probably seen, a guy who did everything right, Only to be tragically killed in a car accident when he was only 22 years old on his 8,256th day. Now, some of you are young and thus physiologically incapable of understanding your own mortality. You're no doubt thinking you can escape this math. Well, I don't have time to go into all the reasons here, but please trust me when I tell you that in the universe in which we live, it is impossible. ...or any advance of technology or medical science to ultimately save you. Outside of the return of Christ, this calculus is inevitable. And whatever the actual number of days may be, being finite, they'll never seem like they're enough. And that's why the concept of 28,832 days is so important... ...because the time is so much shorter than we think. But it's not just something to know in your head, which will gain you nothing but something to really internalize in your heart. Because if you can do that, then you'll be able to keep a clear focus on your finite life and what you're doing with it each and every precious day. You see, time is not only a liar, it's also a hypnotist. And it will constantly conspire to make you forget everything I've just told you. Time wants you to be a sleepy captive on its lazy, drifting current. It wants your life to be as insignificant both to yourself and to others as possible. A long time ago, I saw a video where a snail in an aquarium was caught up in a jet of bubbles and blasted to the surface, then sank back down only to crawl in again, endlessly repeating the same ride over and over. And this is what time wants from you to put you on an endless, meaningless loop, gliding from one distraction to the next until the full number of your days have finally reached their end. One of the biggest regrets of my life so far is the sheer amount of time I've wasted writing my own version of those aquarium bubbles. I've played, I don't know how many hours of video games in college. I've surfed the internet like a zombie. I've watched entire seasons of reality television. Dozens of hours of my life just thrown away on meaningless TV shows, devoid of any intellectual or artistic merit, just to pass the time. Do you know how much more I could know? How much more I could do? How much stronger would be my character? How much more value I could have brought to others if I just had that time back, knowing what I know now? Now, Please understand, I'm, I'm not saying don't engage in leisure. Some people in our work-obsessed culture have heard this message and think I'm saying we need to work longer. But that's not it at all. God gave us the Sabbath, after all, one part out of seven to rest. So it's clearly important. I'm just saying that we should know what we're doing and be wise, even with our leisure time. I'm also not saying don't listen to music or watch movies. I'm a film director, after all. God is not only the ultimate artist, but he gave us the ability to both appreciate and create ourselves Think about it. Music should just be noise, but it's clearly so much more than that. That's significant. God not only wants us to appreciate the beauty he has made in the world, but the beauty made by his creatures as well. Art is a gift, and it can be ennobling. So when I watch great movies like On the Waterfront, Shane, Sunset Boulevard, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Best Years of Our Lives, I'm not only having a great time, but I'm adding with this great art, to the intellectual and even moral fabric of who I am. When I watch season two of The Apprentice, which I've done, sadly, I'm giving a piece of my life away, which I'll never get back. A friend of mine, Jason Fowler, stopped watching TV in his mid-twenties and used the time he saved to learn things, such as how to play the piano, a skill he used to uh, serenade his young children to sleep each night. Jason made a good trade, one that certainly beat using that time to watch Survivor or Dancing with the Stars. Jason used his leisure time to add beauty into his life to become a more interesting person. But it goes far beyond being more interesting, because the story of your life has eternal consequences, and you are co-writing that story every day. I loved Star Wars when I was a kid, the real Star Wars, mind you, not that rancid imposter that many younger folks here grew up with. Sorry, but it's true. I often wish I could be Luke Skywalker hurtling down the Death Star Trench, the fate of a galaxy hanging in the balance. I didn't want to live a normal, boring life. I yearned instead for a life of adventure to join the ancient struggle between good and evil and hopefully emerge a hero. It wasn't until I was much older that I began to realize that our world far from being the tepid existence I once thought, actually is an heroic adventure on a scale far more grand than any world conjured by George Lucas. We're just so used to it, we don't see the truth. But no matter who we are or what our station in life, we are each the protagonist of our own story facing villains far more insidious than Darth Vader in a struggle where the stakes are much, much higher than those in Luke's galaxy far, far away. So what is the story of your life? If I was up here delivering your eulogy right now, what would you want me to say? That you got by okay, that you had some laughs, that you made some money? Or would you rather I say something more worthwhile? Don't settle for the status quo. Figure out what you wanna be and make that happen while you can. Now please understand, my idea of a substantial life has absolutely nothing to do with being wealthy famous or important whatever that means as long as you can provide for yourself and your family you're doing your duty don't worry about things you can't take with you from this life such as wealth that's from Jesus not me worry instead about the things you can take the person you've become while you're here are you growing are you learning improving your character are you showing self-sacrificial love to others are you moving yourself and the project of human civilization forward Are you working with the Holy Spirit in the process of sanctification, helping others, or are you helping others to an eternal destiny with Jesus? Or are you on your third hour of Angry Birds or your second hour of Sports Center? You guys know it counts. Of course, there are many elements in life that are out of one's control, which is why I said you are co-writing your life, not writing it solo, because you're working within the lines which the great author has set before you. But regardless of the situation... It's not what happens to you that really matters, but how you respond to what happens to you that makes you who you are, that demonstrates the character you've developed, that tells the real story of your life. You can become who you want to be in all the ways that actually matter. I'll never forget watching Brandon Lee as he quoted a passage from Paul Bowles's book, The Sheltering Sky, which said, "'Because we don't know when we will die,' We get to think of life as an inexhaustible well. Yet everything happens only a certain number of times, and a very small number, really. How many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood, some afternoon that's so deeply a part of your being that you can't conceive of your life without it, perhaps four or five times more, perhaps not even that? How many more times will you watch the full moon rise? perhaps 20, and yet it all seems limitless. Ironically, this extremely talented young man quoted that passage during what would become his last interview on the set of The Crow, the movie that would have made him a superstar. Brandon Lee was 28 years old. His life was 10,285 days. It does indeed seem limitless. But our turn on the stage is really the blink of an eye. As short as that turn may be, however, never forget it has everlasting consequences. I've never heard this sentiment expressed more beautifully than in Mary Lynn Robinson's 2004 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Gilead, where the author speaks of this world as it will be seen in the world to come. I know that this is all mere apparition compares to what awaits us. But it's only lovelier for that. There's a human beauty in it. And I can't believe that when we've all been changed and put on incorruptibility, we will forget our fantastic condition of mortality and impermanence, the great bright dream of procreating and perishing that meant the whole world to us. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe. The ballad they sing in the streets. Members of the body of Christ, don't waste the beautiful adventure that is your life. Don't accept that aquarium bubble existence. You are so much more than that. You are a part of the epic of the universe. The ballad that will be sung in eternal streets. Your 28,000 or so days are your one chance to write what your part will be. Don't ever let yourself forget this unfathomable privilege. As you leave here today, resolve in your soul to write a story worth singing about. God has given you the pen with which to write your story. It's called your life. Make your story one for the ages. Thank you.
1: It's going to be hard to follow that up. That, again, was David Hunt, and David and his family have been attending New Heights Fayetteville for about the past eight years. David is a motion picture filmmaker, editor, director, producer, and he just released in the past year a movie called Greater. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's the story of the life of Arkansas Razorback All-American Brandon Burlesworth. And he just shared with you, again, a modified version of this speech that he gave at the commencement for Springdale High School a few weeks ago, and his words are a reminder to all of us, you could feel the weight falling in the room, couldn't you? Thinking about this, of the brevity and frailty of human life. Human life is short and frail and brief. We're here one second, and then we're gone the next. And this morning, as we continue our study in the book of James, this is one of the major themes in our text today. James tells us that Human arrogance, human pride can sometimes cause us to disregard God's plan for our lives in pursuit of our own plan. Like he said, we can be hypnotized either by time or by our own desires to be who we want to be and do what we want to do. And so we become prideful and boastful thinking that we know how to plan our lives better than God does. But James tells us that that arrogance can quickly be subdued when we realize how little control we actually have over our lives. There's not one person in this room, I've heard it said like this, I love it, there's not one person in this room whose lives could not be dramatically changed, your entire existence could be changed with one phone call, one phone call, one text message, hearing that one piece of bad news about your closest and dearest loved ones. Not one person in this room. And so this morning, the, the, the question that I want us to consider, the thing that I want us to think about, James is trying to pull out this idea from us. It's this. Are you living with the end in mind? Are you living with the end in mind? How are you spending the days you have left on this planet? Are you wasting them or are you living for the things that matter. That's the talk. Let me pray and we'll get going. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to sit in this place. God, in this room, would you stir up affection for your great name by your word? Would you help us to see the brevity of our lives, to gain the perspective that we need to follow you and to commit to loving you and seeking your will above our own? Put a fire in our bones, in our bellies, God to love what you love, to care about what you care about, and to live a life that matters with the days we have left. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4, verse 13. We're going to look at the last part of this chapter and the first part of the next, James 5, 1 through 6. And you'll remember as we've been talking through James, the theme we've been relating to is this we should be wholehearted in our devotion to Jesus. Wholehearted. In our devotion to Jesus, we should be both hearers of the word and doers of the word. We should have both faith in God and we should have deeds or works that demonstrate that that faith is true. James James teaches us that God doesn't just want a piece of you. God wants all of you. He wants your whole heart, all of your plans, all of your affections, all of your bank account, everything about you belongs to him. He wants us to wholeheartedly seek him and follow him. But again, the problem is we sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, aren't wholehearted, are we? We have these competing desires, these competing affections. Our hearts can be divided. James uses this word, dipsychos, which which means double-souled. We, we can have double, there's like, it's like there's two people living inside of us. And so I want to follow Jesus, I want to love Jesus, but I also want to be comfortable. And I, and I want to follow Jesus, and I want to love Jesus, but I also want, want to make a lot of money and retire early and be safe and be secure and be healthy. And we have these internal desires, even good things for your life, that are competing for the the core of your affections in your life. We can be double-souled. It's like our souls are split in half. And so James encourages us then to pursue the way of wisdom. And if you read James, it reads very much like the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. James pulls these themes from both the Sermon on the Mount from his big brother Jesus, but also from Proverbs and Job in Ecclesiastes, and what he says is you should pursue wisdom because wisdom will give you the perspective to see how you ought to live your life. Wisdom comes from the fear of the Lord, and it allows you to see the relationship between your life and everything that will happen to you, to walk in it in righteousness, consistent, wholehearted in your devotion to this Jesus. And that's what our text is today. It's a perspective passage. It shakes you awake to say, wow, what is my life? What is my life? Let's read it together. James 4, 13 through 17. Here's what it says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? That's the question of all philosophy. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it's sin. This is God's word. And right out of the gate here, James, James in verse 13 says, come now. Other translations may say, listen. It would be like me saying, come on, listen to me right now, people. And this is a term that's expressing judgment or warning. He's saying there is divine judgment coming if you don't listen to what I'm saying. Perk up. Perk your ears up to me. And the people here talking to are are people who make plans. Business people, in, in this case. People who make plans for their lives, how they might Travel and work and earn a paycheck and turn a profit. People who are making plans on, how do I max out my my 401k? How do I max out my Roth IRA? Can I buy rental property in order to have some alternative streams of income? People who are making plans for their lives. And and, and one thing I want you to notice here is James is not critiquing or condemning plan making. All of you like loose, type B people like, whoo. (laughs) Type A people are like, ugh. He's not condemning plan-making. There's this biblical principle about counting the cost before you go off to battle or preparing the horse for battle. And so plan-making is not evil, especially if you're a business traveler, right? We're in Walmart country, and so you know you can't just show up to the airport and expect to get on the plane. You've got to book the flight in advance. You've got to, you've got to book the hotel room. You've got to set up meetings in the city that you're traveling to. And so planning is not evil. Wise people make plans, Right? That's not what James is critiquing here. What he is critiquing is leaving God out of your plans. Leaving God out of your plans. What does that mean? It means making your plans and giving no thought to him. It means living your life with no consideration Of him. It means getting out the pen and paper, and you start strategic planning, and you do the SWOT analysis, and you set short term and long term goals, and you do that completely devoid of the Holy Spirit, completely devoid of inquiring of God and asking Him, God, what do you want me to do with my life? That is what He's critiquing. Planning is not evil. We should plan, but we should never leave God out of our plans. Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one. 31, he says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. You See this beautiful swirl that he wants us to understand in our lives? Plan, be wise, but never live your life devoid of the leading of God and the plans that you make. There's this great book we read as a staff several years ago uh, called Respectable Sins. Has anyone ever read this book? It's by a guy named Jerry Bridges. Oh, it's such a fantastic book. It's about the pervasive sins that we tolerate in the lives, uh, in, in our Christian lives today. If you haven't read this book, buy it. Go read it. It's, it's, it's incredible. And one of the sins he talks about in this book is this sin called ungodliness. And he makes the distinction between ungodliness and wickedness. Wickedness is going out and doing all kinds of evil on purpose. He says ungodliness is different. Here's here's what he says ungodliness is. Let me read it to you. Jerry Bridges. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or of God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. Someone can lead a responsible life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant to his or her life. He goes on to say, The sad fact is that many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. We may even read our Bibles and pray for a few minutes at the beginning of each day, but then we go out into the day's activities and basically live as though God doesn't exist. We seldom think of our dependence on God or our responsibility to Him. We might go for hours with no thought of God at all. In that sense, we are hardly different from our unbelieving decent nice neighbor god is not at all in his thoughts and he's hardly in ours as well and this is the sin this ungodliness is the thing that james is critiquing here making plans without inviting god into that process not inviting god into your plans but making plans with god there's a distinction there and it's terrifyingly easy to do this isn't it to go into that hypnotized autopilot mode where you just put one foot in front of the other and live your life. And at some point you wake up and you think, where am I? Who am I? What, what have I been doing with my time? How many plans have you made in the past month that has not invited God into those plans? How many decisions have you made in the past month where you have not invited the Holy Spirit into your decisions? How many projects have you done? Where you haven't consulted God on, should I even be doing this? It's terrifyingly easy to fall into the sin of ungodliness. And what James is calling us to do is practice the discipline of seeking the will of the Lord. That's why in verse 15 he says, what you should do is is say, if the Lord wills, we'll go do this, or we'll travel here, or we'll do that. And this is more than some trite Christian cliche. You ever hear someone say this? Uh, I'm going to go on summer vacation this summer. God willing, right? Have you, ever, have, have you ever done that? He's not saying don't add a cliche to the end of your, your plans. Invite God into the very fabric of your life. Orient your whole life around seeking the will of the Lord. Make plans with God. Every plan that we should make, every decision we make should be evaluated by God's word and by his standard. It should be prayed over. We should take time to stop and listen and seek God's advice for everything that we do. Do you do that? Is that how you're orienting your life? We know that that can't happen unless you are in relationship with him. Reading his word. Listening to him as you pray. One of the reasons I think King David was, was called a man after God's own heart. Is over and over and over again in First and Second Samuel. If you read about David, it says, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. David invited God into his life. David oriented his life around what God wanted for him. Are you doing that? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Jesus said it differently. He said, Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Are you orienting your life around God's plan and not your own? And then moving on, James moves into this idea of the brevity of human life as a motivation to seek God's will. Here's what he says. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? Boy, we all need to reflect on that question, don't we? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And that word mist here can also be translated a puff of smoke. It it means that your life is like a puff on a vapor cigarette, right? You didn't think you'd get an e-cig joke in church today, did you? But you did. Your life is like a puff of smoke on a vapor cigarette. Your life is like the morning mist that appears for a moment, and then the sun comes out, and it's scorched, and it's gone. Your life is short and frail and brief. Have you ever come face-to-face with that reality? Many of us have lost loved ones or been in situations where, where, where we come face-to-face with our own mortality. Katie and I last year, yesterday was our anniversary. And last year, a year ago, we were on an anniversary trip. And we went to Mexico, the two of us together, spent a week together hanging out. It was really great. And uh, we, 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 we have a great week. And then we get back to the airport and we get on an airplane and we start taxing the runway. And then our plane takes off into the air. And we're headed home to see our kids who were here in Northwest Arkansas. We spent a week without them, it was amazing. And while we're in the plane, I, I don't know if you know, but, but when, you know that feeling when you're in the plane and you're taking off and you hear the loud roar of the engines, you feel the vibration of the plane as it's cutting through the air, and we're sitting there, and we're in first class, by the way, which we had never ridden in, we had some friends gift us some really cool seats, so we're right at the front of the plane, and just before the plane is getting ready to punch through the clouds and, and go high in the air, the engines fell silent. And the vibrations stopped and the nose of the plane started sinking downward instead of upward. And those are those moments where you go, we immediately knew something was wrong. And that was confirmed, by the way, when our stewardess, our flight attendant who was sitting in front of us, buckled in. She gets a phone call from the cockpit and we couldn't hear what the pilot was saying. But when her face turned white and looked worried, we really knew something was wrong. And the nose of the plane starts going down, and we start descending, and it's quiet. And I remember Katie and I just, start, she, she starts weeping, and because she's weeping, I start weeping. And we start praying for our kids who might grow up with, with, without their mom and dad if this thing ends poorly. Have you ever had one of those moments? You ever have one of those moments where you come face-to-face face with your own mortality, with the end of your life? Obviously, We survived. But as we were going down, the the pilot said, hey, I still have control of the plane. We have a mechanical error. We're not going to have to make a water landing, which is a fancy way of saying crashing, right? (laughs) A water landing, yeah, yeah, like, sure. And we get back down, and they decommission the plane. And we have to spend another 24 hours at a resort in Mexico together. (laughs) But here's my point. Here's my point. When you come face to face with your own mortality, you start thinking about the things that are really important, don't you? The things that are cherished and valuable in your life. You start thinking about your kids and your loved ones. You start thinking about whether your life mattered or not, whether you had done significant things. Nobody on the plane, while the plane is descending, is scrolling Facebook timelines, right? No one's doing that because when you come face to face with your own mortality, you realize there are things in life that are important and there are things that are not important. And what's happening here is that God is offering us wisdom, a way to live our lives, perspective, so that we're not hypnotized by time and by our own pride. Psalm 90 talks about this perspective And the brevity of our lives. And this is Moses writing. Here's what he says. He says, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And what he's saying is when you start counting your days, when you realize that you only have 28,832 days left, you start gaining perspective, wisdom. And I want you to notice this. We don't generally count our days when we're, when we're quantifying our lives, do we? we? We tend to count our years. You know, how many years have you been alive? How many birthdays have you had? How many major milestones in your life? But what God is saying is, I want you to count your days. Count your days. Because when you do that, you live in the present tense. You live in the now. You don't waste opportunities. You don't waste your time on things that matter, that don't matter. And what James is telling us, and this is what's really happening here, is when you come face-to-face with that mortality, it's really a humbling moment, isn't it? You're being humbled. You can't be arrogant when you realize that you're going to die because you have no control over the end of your life. You're being humbled. And, And what Sean talked about last week is that humility is telling the truth about yourself. Humility is telling the truth about yourself. It's being able to rightly account for who and what you are. The understanding, the brevity of life humbles us and gives us the perspective we need to orient our lives around the things that matter, God's plans instead of our plans. Have you come face to face with that reality? And then James ends our text this morning by pronouncing God's judgment. On the wicked rich who arrogantly focus on the temporal life, ignoring God, living an ungodly life, exploiting their workers, exploiting the people who who are with them, exploiting the vulnerable, orienting their lives around themselves and not him. Here's what he says in James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person and he does not resist you. And what he's doing here is pronouncing judgment on those who will continue to live their lives and not get this. People who will continue to live an ungodly life and never come around to the place where you say, I am submitting my will, my plans, my life to you, O oh God. There's a judgment day coming and, and the people he's talking to are these wealthy landowners these people who use their power to oppress or to just get what they want for their lives life is all about them they were self-indulgent and arrogant and people were just a means to an end and they were arrogant enough to think i can live however i want to live and watch as many hours of reality tv as i want and just build barns for myself and there will be no consequences for me at the end of my life. And what James is saying is, you're wrong. There are consequences for how you live at the end of this story. You'll notice the similarity between James's words and Jesus' words in Matthew 6, where he says, "Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal." And he's saying, "Where are you storing your treasure? Where are you storing the treasure of your life? And again, the principle is the day of judgment is coming. There, there will be a day where all of us will stand before God after we die. And we'll have to give an account for how we live our life, every one of us. What did you do with the time you had? What did you do with the resources that you had? What did you do with the influence that you had? And James's encouragement for us this morning is are you living with the end in mind? Are you living with the end in mind? Or are you wasting your life by living for yourself, by making your plans, and never inviting God in? And so this morning, here's what I want to do. When we come face to face with this reality, with the frailty of our lives and the number of our days, when when we have that moment where the weight of what David said earlier falls in the room, it helps us gain perspective, doesn't it? You start thinking about hugging the people that you love and doing the things that matter. It subdues our own arrogance and our own affinity towards just living life on autopilot. And so, here's what I want to do I, I want to spend some time as we end this morning reflecting. I want to reflect. And-, and-, and here's how we're going to do it there's this great exercise at the end of, or at the beginning of a chapter in Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Has anyone ever read this book? Great book. And the reason this is great is because he's taking a transcendent principle that we see in Scripture, and he's applying it to the effectiveness of living your life. And here's what he says. He says, close your eyes. Do this with me. Close your eyes. And he says, in your mind's eye, see yourself going to the funeral of a loved one. Picture yourself driving to the chapel Parking the car and getting out. And as you walk inside the building, you notice the flowers and the soft music playing, and you see the faces of friends and family you pass along the way. You feel the shared sorrow of losing and the joy of having known that radiates from the people there. And as you walk down to the front of the room, you look inside of an open casket, and suddenly you come face to face with yourself. This is your funeral, three years from today. And all these people have come together to honor you, to express feelings of love and appreciation for your life. And as you take a seat and wait for the service to begin, you look at the program in your hand. There are going to be four speakers. The first one is from your family. Children or your spouse, brothers or sisters or nieces and nephews. They've come from all over the country to attend. The second speaker is one of your friends, someone who, who has a sense of what you are as a person. The third one is someone from your work or profession. And the fourth is someone you go to church with. Now think deeply. What would you like each of these people to say about your life? What kind of husband, wife, Father or mother would you like their words to reflect? What kind of son or daughter or friend? What kind of working associate? What character would you like them to say they've seen in you? What contributions, what achievements, what difference would you have made in these people's lives? And I did this exercise myself this past week and I wrote out several, many more than four things because I started thinking, I really want my life to to look like several. And let me just share a few of mine with you. Here's here's what I wrote for myself. You could tell that when you were with Josh, that, that it wasn't about him. That he wasn't the main point of his life. That he loved God and loved people. And his life reflected that. Josh was a man of wisdom. And when I say that, I don't just mean good advice but you could tell when you were around him that he had been with Jesus, and that's where his wisdom came from. When Josh prayed, you just got the sense that he was speaking to someone that he knew very well, one of those old familiar friends who he spent a lot of time with. His prayers were drenched with passion and power. Josh was the definition of a father, not only to his kids but to others. He blessed Encouraged and challenged me to be the person of faith that I am today. Here's what I want you to do. There should be a pen and a note card in your seat. And what I want you to do is take a few minutes here at the end, and I want you to write down three or four things that you want someone to say about you at your funeral. What's a eulogy That your friends or family or coworkers, someone who knows you well, what would you want them to say about you? How is the Holy Spirit informing that desire for your life? So let's take a few minutes right now, pick up those note cards, pick up a pen, write down some of those things. is a thief and a hypnotist and our human nature, our flesh wants us to live life on autopilot, numbed out to the things that really matter. And when we reflect on the number of our days, understanding that human life is short and frail, it provides the Holy Spirit the opportunity to give us perspective and wisdom in how we live our life. Are you living for the things that matter? Do you care about the things that God cares about? Are you living an ungodly life, devoid of his influence in any way, even as a Christian, that's possible? Or are you inviting him into everything that you are? And I just wanna say, it's not possible to do that without a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not possible. We need the Holy Spirit in in us to nudge us to care about the things that, that he cares about, to remind us of the things that really matter. James says, it kind of sums up the whole moral ethical message of James. He says, if anyone knows the good you ought to do and doesn't do it, that's sin. How many of us this morning knew the good that we ought to do and we didn't do it? But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, who he lived a life of perfection, doing everything the Father did so that we, in our imperfection, could be saved and have a relationship with him. Thanks be to God who, for, for Jesus, who he was the righteous one who was abused by the unrighteous, wealthy, self-indulgent people, and he did not fight back. And he did that for us. And so if you actually want to do this, you have to know Christ and be in relationship with him and pursue him. May we be people who do that. Let me pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be in this place this morning. And I pray that we would not leave here and walk away and and never reflect. We have to reflect or will be uh, captured by this bandit that is time. Lord, help us to have perspective. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. We're gonna go back into a time of worship. We have communion available on the sides of the room. We do this every week here at New Heights. It's a reminder of the body of Christ broken for us and his blood shed on our behalf. We encourage you to go to the table in remembrance of him, and we encourage you to go together. Don't take communion by yourself. Do it with someone. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, if you don't know this Jesus, then we ask you to abstain. This is not something that's for you. It's for for people who are in covenantal relationship with this God. And so, So there's nothing magical about communion. Uh, Just just sit there and reflect on, on some of these things we've talked about. Don't throw away this note card. Put it in your Bible. Go home and type this up. Put it on your wall or your refrigerator to remind yourself of the things that really matter. And so let's stand and let's worship this Jesus.